0: Science Po. Po. Hello and welcome to Science Po's research podcast on uh, environmental transformation. In today's episode, I have here with me uh, Carola Klock, assistant professor at Science Po, assistant professor of political science, who works on adaptation to climate change at uh, the local level. For small islands. She works on small island states, which are playing a very important role in the global agenda of uh, climate adaptation, climate negotiations, understanding how we address financing climate uh, adaptation, climate change adaptation. um, And uh, Uh, In case you wonder, there are actually many uh, small island states, uh, uh, 38 UN members, 20 different kinds of territories, dependencies... Um, You would say that out of uh, about 200 countries in the world, that's a big number, but probably there are not too many people living in there. Actually, you would be surprised that uh, we have about 65 million people living in those states, which is uh, less than 1% of global population, but it's pretty much the same number of people as this country, France, where we're sitting today with uh, Carola. But to what extent they play a special role in the climate change uh, which is uh, the subject of research of uh, Carola what, what what would you tell me if i ask you why there is a special issue in the climate research in the research on environmental transformation
1: so thanks thanks for having me first um, you already said small island states are important because there are many of them actually the majority of states is small by one measure or another uh, but small island states are very interesting for political scientists, particularly in international relations, because most of them are fairly small. So they can be extremely small, like Tuvalu, 10,000 inhabitants, or Seychelles, 100,000 inhabitants, but they have the same status as France or any other country. Um, and so it's very interesting to see how they do, how they deal with that situation, given the small size, given the limitations that they have, the, you know just the resources, the manpower, um, and how they deal with the international system. Um, And many would say, well, they can't do much, given that limitation. But in the case of climate change, we actually see that they can and do influence international affairs. Uh, So in the climate regime, they realized very, very early on that they're all very different, but they're all impacted strongly by climate change and that they can't change the agenda on their own. So they have to band together and they formed an alliance, the Alliance of Small Island States. Um, And this uh, this alliance, the OOSIS, has become a key player in the climate field. So they are considered now one of the core actors in the climate negotiation. So it's very interesting to see how they overcame the limitations to to become that player in the climate field.
0: How does that work in practice? So you have several tens of players. Uh, With different status. Some of them are fully recognized states. Some of them are less uh, recognized, recognized by not everybody. Some of them are members of the UN, some are not. Uh, How do they elect their representatives? How do they form delegations for COPs, for example? Mm. How does that work in in practical terms?
1: So AOSIS is mainly comprised of the independent island states, of which there are... um, Actually, AOSIS has 39 members. 37 of them are UN members. Two are... Uh, That's the Cook Islands and Niue. Um, These are freely associated with New Zealand. So New Zealand is mostly responsible for their foreign affairs, but they do um, send their own delegations to the UNFCCC, to the the climate uh, negotiations. They also are, for, for example, UNESCO members, but they are not UN members given their particular status. There's also a number of subnational islands uh, you already mentioned. And France, for example, has a a couple of islands overseas, like French Polynesia or La Réunion, with different status. But these islands are not very active in the climate regime. So if I talk about small islands, uh, and particularly EOSAs in climate negotiations, I talk about these sovereign island states um, also, again, some maybe would question to what extent their, their sovereignty status is the same as that of France, for example, because they have signed compacts of free association like Cook Islands and Niue. Niue there's also three islands that have signed compacts of free associations with the United States, Palau, Micronesia and Marshall Islands. Um, and then others, even if you, if you are formally fully independent, but you have a population of 10,000, of course, you can question to what extent you can defend yourself, for example, in, in real life. Um but they are formally the same status, as I said, as other countries. So they they can send their own delegations. They do send their own delegations. They work together very strongly. Um, and that's how they actually manage to participate. Because if you're a country of 10,000 or 100,000 people, uh, logically, you cannot send hundreds of people to a COP. You have to, you know, you can afford to send maybe two, three, five, maybe 10 people. But that's nothing to- in comparison with the hundreds of people that the U.S. or
0: so thinking about this, what are the challenges, what are the main questions they discuss in uh, multilateral climate uh, negotiations? They are not big polluters, you can imagine. Uh, they are, on, unfortunately, on the receiving side on, of climate change. What, what, what is that they do?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so exactly. This is why they, they depend so strongly on international agreements, why they have such a strong interest in the climate negotiations and getting strong climate agreements. Um, island states altogether are responsible for about 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, they do have, some of them, most of them, very ambitious domestic policies. So for example, they want to become 100% renewable by 2025 or 2030. But even if they stopped emitting totally with 1% of global emissions, it doesn't change a lot which they know, so which is why they go to these negotiations to push other countries, bigger countries, bigger polluters to do their share. And much of what they do som- domestically is symbolic. So they basically say, if we manage to become 100% renewable, given our small size and our limited resources, well, then you should definitely be able to do so. So that's one of their key demands, to close the emissions gap uh, and, and keep global warming to 1.5 degrees or as close as possible to that limit. They also um, deal very strongly with the effects of climate change so they're already impacted by sea level rise by drought by um, extreme weather events uh, such as hurricanes or cyclones um, and they don't have the resources to deal with that and it's also not really fair for them to, for, for us to ask them to pay themselves for these impacts because as we just said they haven't contributed they haven't caused the problem so they also ask a lot where they push the agenda for support financial and technical resources to support um, adaptation and also losses and damages. So that's when adaptation is no longer or not possible.
0: That brings us to a broader debate about loss and damages. This is a, just a very crystal clear example where somebody who's not contributed to the uh, emissions to climate change uh, wants to see restoration of climate justice global on the global level. And so there is this debate of loss and dom- damage uh, mechanism. Also promises by the West to spend by the developing developed countries to spend about to give about a hundred billion uh, a year. Uh, how? Does does that work uh, more globally? You're working on this as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So, EOSAS actually has pushed for loss and damage funding for 30 years, and its only last COP that this was a decision. This was also a red line, and it shows again that EOS is able to change the agenda and to influence the negotiations. So, the 100 billion that you uh, that you mentioned, um, actually, the Climate Convention since 1992 um agrees to provide support to the most vulnerable, which includes the small island developing states. Um. This was made concrete in 2009 at the Copenhagen Summit, which was generally considered a failure, but it did uh, bring to the table for the first time concrete numbers for financial support. So this was the 100 billion that developed countries um, were to mobilize um, by 2020. And that's every year to support mitigation and adaptation in the global south. We're still not there. So we are now, the the OECD data suggests that we are at about 80 billion and that's probably a very generous estimate of actual numbers. That's actually and that not-
0: includes what? Uh, that yeah. includes loans, right? Uh.
1: That includes grants and loans. And actually, one of the problems with that number is that it was never agreed what would count towards the 100 billion. And donors, of course, have an interest to count as much as possible. Everything that is sort of remotely related to climate change, they would count into that number. And there's other numbers, uh, more critical numbers, that put the number at much lower than 80 billion but even you know even with the generous estimate of 80 billion that's still 20 billion short of what was promised we're now in 2023 this was the number that was to be reached in 2020 so developing countries including Eosis are very unhappy with that um and it it, it means also a lot of loss of trust in the negotiations in the promises made actually the negotiations right now are ongoing to find a new goal uh, which will be decided by 2025. Sort of a new uh, goal for financial support. And this probably will also then include loss and damage. So the 100 billion is actually for adaptation and mitigation but not for loss and damage.
0: So let's let's talk about loss and damage after. But uh, when we talk about this 80 versus 100, when you think about loans, if I give you a loan, you pay it back. I give it back to you, so we count twice the same. We recycle the same amount several times. And that, of course, is not what was intentioned uh, as uh, this uh, 100 billion. But before going there, you mentioned that uh, small island states... Um, actually a little bit for this for 30 years, but something has changed. Have they been joined by bigger um, allies? What, what has actually moved, uh, moved the uh, global opinion on this?
1: I think reality has changed. Mm-hmm. So in th- 30 years ago, we knew much less about climate change than we know today. We saw much less the impacts than we see today. And I think today, uh, islands are, are hit first and worst, but they're not the only ones hit, which they have said for 30 years. And now we realize actually France uh, is now uh, has a, a huge problem with droughts. There have been wildfires, there have been heat waves, et cetera, et cetera. So we actually see the consequences of global warming. I mean, just to see how serious these consequences are. And I think that has moved or has, uh, um, yeah, that has enabled as countries and other developing countries that are, that also have, you know, the same goals um, to push and to make clear that this is a red line and that they will not sign on in, onto any agreement that does not include loss and damage and funding, separate funding for loss and damage.
0: So how do we structure the loss and damage? What, uh, what did we talk about uh, the last COP, uh, about loss and damage mechanism?
1: I uh, actually just just as we are talking this is the first transitional the first meeting of the transitional committee for this new fund for loss and damage so the decision which was a historic decision in the climate negotiations uh, is a very vague decision as such it just says that we will have this fund but nobody knows yet what this fund will look like who is going to pay in and who is getting going to get funding from that fund it's all up for discussion a uh, decision is to be reached within 2 years Um, So it's still not clear. Yeah, many of the questions are still open. Um.
0: And uh, the summit in Paris in June, this will discuss uh, which issues. uh, That is separate from loss and damage fund. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So once uh, once we talk about those issues, so what is the current state uh, current state of vulnerability of small island states? So we said that they're first in line for for the impacts, but uh, where are we? So you mentioned France is suffering forest fires, uh, droughts, uh, um, decline in production of nuclear energy because of that. Uh, people suffer without air conditioning in Northern Europe. So that is that is one thing. But what is actually happening in terms of vulnerability in small island states?
1: It's, it's the same problems that you just listed, only mm-hmm. I think worse because mm-hmm. they've been visible for a longer mm-hmm. time. Uh, so um, I think we should not underestimate the diversity of SIDS this is a very heterogeneous group of countries. Mm-hmm. It includes countries as diverse as the Comoros, the least developed country, uh, or no more least developed countries, but very relatively poor country. It includes the Bahamas, Singapore, uh, Fiji, Vanuatu. So it's very many different countries that are all hit differently by climate change. Sea level rises, of course, are issues. Slow onset events, which are less visible than extreme weather events, but no less mm-hmm. uh, terrifying. Um, the cyclones the droughts uh, it's it's wildfires etc it's the same it's the same problems uh, they're just i think worse for two reasons first because they've been hit or they've been they, they yeah their geography makes them more vulnerable uh, and second they have fewer resources to deal with these impacts
0: but when you say uh, the issue of uh, rising sea levels and therefore, coastal adaptation. What is the time horizon? One thing is extreme events. uh, The other one is this, uh, and some people would say, slow. By historical uh, standards, probably very fast. The change, which is coming simply every year. What is the speed of this change?
1: That's very hard to say because, again, it it differs very much from one place Mm -hmm. to another. Mm -hmm. The problem is also the coastal erosion is not only caused by climate change, but by also very many other factors. Uh, most importantly and on the short run it's human interference with the coast so building a port uh, building too close to the coast in general taking sand for building that's all things that also contribute to erosion so it's actually very difficult to say this is this amount or this these meters uh, that we lost is because of climate change and then these other five meters is because of building a port or or building a seawall or something else so it's very hard to give you precise numbers Uh, however evidence is that most coasts are or many coasts are re for a diversity of factors and this is a big problem particularly for island states because they have very long coastlines compared to the land area and basically much if not all of their populations and infrastructure are, are concentrated in low coastal plains.
0: You mentioned uh, Comoros. This is the place where you actually physically went. Uh, so for uh, you who lived most of your life in Europe, uh, what did you find uh, interesting, different, and uh, probably not uh, not that encouraging in, in the case of environmental transformation, climate change? Um,
1: yeah, Comoros. Is, is, I went to the Comoros because... Or I picked the Comoros to do a case study because... Um, it's a small and developing states. It's at least or was very recently a least developed country, and it's an African country. And these are all groups of countries that are recognized as being particularly vulnerable. So I expected Comoros to be particularly vulnerable. And indeed, you can already see and feel the consequences of climate change. They were, for example, recently hit by a cyclone. There's coastal erosion across the three islands of the Comoros. But at the same time, there's also a lot of local factors that contribute and make worse the effects of climate change such as costly erosion. So sand mining I mentioned is a factor that drives costly erosion it's very it's prohibited formally but it's still practiced very uh, widely across the comoros and that just drives costly erosion. It's uh, yeah it's it, it shows that there is always many factors going on. It's very difficult to you know that there's not one cause or one culprit it's always a mix of things. It also shows that governance is a big problem and that uh there's no easy solutions.
0: As a political scientist, you probably was uh, mostly interested in issues of governance, political economy. Is there a, is there um, a consensus among the voters, among political players, among uh, business players that something needs to be done? Other because this is something that is happening in their in front of their eyes. This is different than say in Europe thirty years ago. So, and in that sense, in that sense, did you see? Uh, why politics may be part of the problem or po- part of the solution. What did you see there?
1: As always, they're part of the problem and they're part of the solution. <laughs> but uh, of course, climate change is very serious, but it doesn't mean that there's no other problems. And I think that's a general assumption. When we talk about SIDS and climate change, we assume that this is the most pressing urge and most urgent, most serious threat. But there are so many other problems that SIDS face at the same time. Economic development, uh, gender inequalities. Uh, education access to education access to health services um and so it's actually quite difficult to fund or to find the both the political will and the resources to address these different problems and to address climate change on top and this is also to some extent understandable because of course as as we said in the beginning they didn't cause climate change so they shouldn't be able or they shouldn't be forced to pay for the consequences which is why A lot of climate change projects are funded externally, which then again has other problems, because if you depend on foreign aid for support, it's not necessarily your own priorities. It's not the projects maybe that the local people would like to do, but it's also the donor interests that come into play. There's a question of ownership. There's a question of long term programs versus short term development projects. So it's difficult.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I myself, I worked in an international development bank, in a multilateral development bank, and I saw that a project like this would be considered as a very interesting project. Why? Because the country is small. Uh, the country is actually smaller than an average uh, small island <laughs> state. It's less than a million people living in Comoros, And uh, with the same amount of uh, dollars or billions of dollars, you can achieve m- much more in terms of at the country level. And so uh, the development banker would say, we saved uh, this part of the coast in Comoros, and uh, we can actually get, a, get um, a recognition for this. While if we go to a big developing country, we need too many, uh, too many billions of dollars to just enter. And in that sense, I think there should be a willingness on the part of the donors uh, or creditors, uh, development, uh, finance players to participate in that. Is that is that something you saw? Is that uh, or you saw mm-hmm. you, you saw that money is available? It's not money that the problem, but the ownership and governance uh, priorities. Uh,
1: it, it's it's an interesting approach because uh, in practice, SIDS complain a lot about access um, and small scales, because of course, yes, Comoros is below one billion, so you could do a project that reaches one hundred percent of the population. But it's still a maximum of eight hundred thousand people that you reach. Whereas if you go to India, if you go to Argentina and do a project, you could potentially argue that you know there's three billion, five billion people that benefit uh, for the same amount of money, right? Because if you build, there's of projects don't necessarily scale. If you build a, if if you build a cyclone shelter, uh, it's if if the village only has a hundred people, there's no point in building a build a bigger cyclone shelter. If, even if you could do that, with... More or less the same amount of money. So actually projects in in small in small places and particularly in archipelagos that comprise several islands, are tend to be more expensive. Um, so 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 it's not necessarily interesting for donors. Mm-hmm. Right. If if you think well,
0: uh, uh, that depends. That depends to what extent the projects are scalable, transferable. So in, if you if you enter yeah. in India and uh, build uh, one uh, renewable energy plant, uh, then uh, presume that everybody else will copy it and it will spread through the yeah. whole India. This is uh, this is great. Uh, and the question is whether small island states are all different. If they're all different, if transportation costs are high, which is true. Yeah. Uh, to what extent what you do in one island can be uh, replicated. reproduced, replicated in the others.
1: Yeah, that's that's a very good point, and I think that's something that donors want, but that you don't necessarily see. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's several reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I saw that in the Comoros was very very interesting. There's very little exchange between the three islands, or even between villages in one island. And one of the reasons is that the transportation network is very poor, and the transportation is relatively expensive. So streets or roads are in very bad condition you take a long it takes a long time to go anywhere uh inter-island transportation is unsafe so you don't necessarily go Uh, and so you don't even know what is happening next door let alone in an in the other islands of the indian ocean or say the pacific or the caribbean so there's not that much exchange between islands both within one island state or across uh, regions within regions and across regions so the replicability is actually not necessarily guaranteed and that's also because the island states do differ very much from one from another
0: in terms of their challenges vulnerabilities uh, their
1: geographies mm-hmm. their cultures if mm-hmm. you look if you take the comoros the comoros is sub-saharan africa it's it's uh, the population is of african and arab descent it's a muslim country it has ties with the muslim world uh, if you compare that to seychelles which is a neighboring country that's a creole population um not Muslim. It's a democracy. It's it's high income by now. It's the richest country in the the African continent. Comoros is one of the poorest countries on the African continent. So anything that works in the Seychelles doesn't necessarily work in Comoros.
0: This brings me to my other question. When you talk about dissemination of information, uh, one of the things which we see that uh, a lot of developing countries' problems have become more apparent when we have cross-border media, internet, and so on. But in small island states, if you look at the list, you also recognize a lot of tourist destinations for people from rich countries going there. So to what extent uh, Europeans or Americans uh, who come there come back with the understanding of urgency. When you Mm -hmm. were in Comoros, you probably talked to uh, tourists or expats. Uh, To what extent they understood that something needs to be done as soon as possible.
1: So the Comoros is not a tourist destination? There's very few tourists, very few expats either. I don't think they necessarily see more or less of the urgency of the problem than the local population, mm-hmm. probably even less because the local population, they actually, they, they, I mean, they may not be aware of the global climate agenda or the latest climate science, but they certainly see the changes that happen around them. There's often, particularly sort of fishermen or, or farmers, they, they, they observe their environment on a daily basis, so they notice changes.
0: And they complain and they really tell you that last year we had more fish or uh, my father, had easier time fishing? What is what is the frequency of change, the speed of change they, they, they observe? They,
1: they see the changes. Mm-hmm. Even within their generation, they would tell, you know, the rain would come earlier or later or more regularly than today. The fish, they say, is going down. They don't necessarily link it to, to global climate change. They more often blame local factors, such as we already talked about, you know, sand mining. There's no waste management at all in place in the Comoros, for example. So they rather um, link local factors to local changes than the global changes to low global climate change to what they observe in their daily lives, which and also maybe is more dif- makes it more difficult to implement some certain solutions. Uh, that's that's not only my own research, but also other research has shown that local populations have a hard time to distinguish irreversible climate change that happens over long time spans with reversible and natural climate variability. So there's always been years where the rain has come later or sooner but they don't necessarily know that now this will not go back that this will, this is a change that is not that is not reversible
0: so basically, this is uh, your point about human capital, which sometimes is missing to measure things, to collect data and do research on local local conditions.
1: Also, because often local data is not available. Uh, the global models are often used a 30 kilometers by 30 kilometers uh, matrix. And some of these islands are smaller than that. So they wouldn't even appear on these global models. So the data and then the question is to what extent the global data or the, these calculations and models apply to the local realities, I would also say that this is not necessarily unique to small islands. Uh, if you if you go on the street and ask an average French person, I'm not sure how much they know about climate change, how much they, they are aware of the the changes and how much but particularly they link that to the you know what they see around them. So we've had floods in Europe, the wildfires. I don't know to what extent people are aware that they may, may just have to move permanently because they live in a place that is no longer uh, a good place to live.
0: Coming from Russia, I can tell you that uh, French citizens are much better informed than people think. Uh, but coming uh, coming back to your point about Camoras and small island states, uh, uh, so if it depended on you, if United States, uh, United Nations uh, G- Secretary General would appoint you a UN envoy for adaptation of small island states, what would be your uh, top priorities?
1: Uh, first, uh, comply with what has already been agreed and provide the funding that has been promised, uh, and and then make that make sure that this is really new and additional resources. But second, I think it's just as important to use that money wisely, wisely because even if we you know mobilize 100 billion every year, that's not enough. So it's very important to to um, monitor and learn from the past: what has worked, what has not worked, what can be replicated, uh, how can we really avoid mistakes from the past and and invest the resources that we have in the most efficient way and i think a lot of it is to do also to listen to local people because as i said they live very closely with their environment, so they know what is happening they know uh, what works um, and so we need to involve them but at the same time also mobilize the, the you know the latest climate science so bring that together
0: uh, thank and you very much. Ma- can I
1: just add something? Mm-hmm. I ahead. think the most important thing, however, is mitigation and reducing emissions. And not the, not the small island states, that's us, the big polluters, that need to really cut down our emissions. And I think that's the key thing to do.
0: Um, I think I fully, I fully agree with this. So to help with the small island states, you need to take action at the global level. And this is especially important in this case because, indeed, these uh, uh, countries are not contributing to pollution, have not contributed to pollution as much. And even if they fully eliminate uh, emissions, uh, they will not change the global temperatures. Uh, on the other hand, uh, your other advice is to provide funding, but also uh, produce yes, ownership, ownership, improve governance. And this is where political science comes in uh, because uh, we've seen, also examples as uh, foreign aid would actually not benefit uh, the recipient countries. Thank you very much. That was Karola uh, uh, Klerk, uh, Assistant Professor of Political Science at uh, Sciences Po. I'm Sergei Guriev, uh, Provost at, of Sciences Po. Please stay tuned for more episodes uh, from Sciences Po podcast on environmental transformation. Sciences Science Po.